Welcome to the Association of Insurance Compliance Professionals podcast. AICP serves the insurance compliance community by promoting relationships, exchanging information, and providing learning opportunities within a dynamic regulatory environment. You're listening to Risk Insolvency Assessment with your host, Dan Cotter, attorney and counselor at Howard & Howard Attorneys PLLC, who currently serves as the AICP's general counsel. And today's guest, Bob Marshall. Mr. Marshall was appointed vice president and chief risk officer in September 2011 after holding several different positions within Chesapeake Employers Insurance Company since 1993. His responsibilities include leading the enterprise risk management initiatives around identifying, quantifying, and correlating major risks affecting the company and utilizing them as catalysts for ongoing strategic planning. A summa cum laude graduate of the Pennsylvania State University, Mr. Marshall has also completed several graduate courses in information systems and business. Throughout his career, he has spoken on numerous topics at several national and regional insurance and technology conferences. And now, here's your host, Dan Cotter. Welcome to today's podcast. My name is Dan Cotter, and I currently have the pleasure of serving as the AICP's general counsel. Today, we're going to discuss the topic of ERM and ORSA. Don't worry, we will let you know what the acronyms stand for. If you are new to insurance, you will come to know the realm is full of acronyms and abbreviations. And for those that maybe stumbled on this podcast and aren't familiar, uh, the AICP is the Association of Insurance Compliance Professionals, a national association of those in the insurance compliance field. And this podcast has been a series, and so you may have listened to other podcasts. Today's podcast, we're going to discuss insurance company requirements in conducting internal risk management reviews and the systems uh, that are designed for measuring, monitoring, and mitigating that risk. This process is fairly new to the insurance industry and is called an Own Risk Insolvency Assessment, or ORSA, as we used previously. It assesses the adequacy of a company's risk management and the current and prospective solvency positions under normal and severe stress scenarios. Utilizing ORSA, an insurer will analyze reasonably foreseeable and relevant material risk, such as underwriting, credit, marketing, operational, liquidity risk, legal, cyber, and others that could impact its ability to meet its obligations, and then will report those findings to regulators. And the term ERM stands for Enterprise Risk Management. And in getting ready for this show, one of the things that we talked about with Bob, who's my guest today, Bob Marshall, I'll introduce in a second, is that many of our companies have firewalls, and if you have a need for software or other things to do things like this podcast, you may run into those firewalls and protections that the company has in place as part of their ERM and ORSA uh, framework. As mentioned today, I'm pleased to be joined by Bob Marshall, Vice President and Chief Risk Officer at Chesapeake Employers Insurance Company. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Glad to be here. And why don't we jump right into the topic of the day, and uh, let's talk about ERM as part of an overall uh, system, and very specifically NAIC ORSA. And how did you get involved with ERM, Bob? Uh, Well, as Vice President of Information Systems, I'd already created a pretty detailed IT risk assessment uh, following the National Institutes of Science and Technology's guidelines um, in the mid-2000s. And then as a member of uh, Chesapeake Employer's senior management team, 
I was a member of the company's first generation ERM team that uh, we formed in 2007. A really interesting antidote is in an early risk identification brainstorming breakout session back in 2007, I actually suggested to our chief risk officer, what if stocks and bonds lost 50% of their value bankrupting banks? His response, that's preposterous. It would never happen. Bad bear markets are only 20 to 25% loss. Well, obviously it did. <laughs> and and uh, you, you raise a great point. I, I think part of the exercise is, is we'll get into some, and as you already demonstrated, is that this whole enterprise risk management and force of process is really designed to think about what ifs, right? And for those that have ever looked at a public company's uh, financial statements, you'll see that the risk factors are out the wazoo, right? There's all kinds of things that could go wrong, but it's because of those things, because as Bob, you just said, you know, I, I had similar conversations back in those days. Uh, also, you know, all financial advisors that I knew of were telling you that you should balance your portfolio because they weren't correlated, right? You should have bonds and stocks and all that stuff. And again, you hit the nail on the head. And I think, you know, the, the market crash that you referred to in 2008 really was the major impetus for rating agencies uh, such as AM Best and, and Dimotech and others and regulators of the insurance arena, whether stocks, banks, or insurance, uh, to focus on ERM and stress testing. And why don't you tell us, Bob, briefly about the various post-market crash initiatives uh, that resulted, including Dodd-Frank, the two big to fail scenarios, and the NEIC ORSA that we're going to talk about as well. Well, as you said, Dan, in the past, you know, rating agencies and regulator reviews usually involve best and worst case three-year financial projections and a brief discussion maybe of very generic financial risks. Those are not the extreme risk scenarios we learned about, especially after the market crash. And therefore, the goal was to make companies think about all risks, okay, and the extreme risks. So the NAIC developed the ORSA. And AM Best did a lot of work on changing their rating computation that's known as BCAR and making it what they call stochastic. And I think when you talk about stochastic risks, it really gets the idea of these extremes because when you measure risk stochastically, you're measuring one in 200, one in 100, one in 500 year events. So you can just think about that, that this isn't what's going to happen tomorrow. This isn't what's going to happen within four years or eight years. It's more what could happen really over a long period of time. Just like the stock market crisis of 2007, you had to go back to the Great Depression for that. So ERM tries to get executives to think outside the box and move beyond those most obvious risks and thinking of the worst things that could ever happen. And sometimes that's difficult. But you know, at one time, AM Best was considering measuring one in 1,000 year risks, which I always thought was a little extreme. Do you think anyone in the year 1020 could have predicted what society is like in 2020? I will say one thing. They might have mentioned plagues and pandemics. They, they, they surely did. And, you know, I, th I think one of the things that often confuses a lot of people when it comes to these one in 100 or 150 events, and we have the dialogues every time there's a, a busy hurricane season or, you know, things like the pandemic, is that you know, just because it's one in a hundred, right? Like any odds, it doesn't mean that it only happens once every hundred years, right? The the real significance, I think, of those kinds of stochastic measurements, like you're talking about, Bob, is, is to really 
talk about these things that are not very frequent. And you're, you're right, people in 1020 could have never predicted the exacts of this, the, the computers and everything. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, the, the whole concept of what the founders thought about certain things and how we got to, you know, the 20th and 21st century and what they would have thought about it. It's, it's hard to put that, you know, kind of perspective in place. So let's take a look. We've mentioned a few times the NEIC ORSA. Why don't we talk about the history and timeline in terms of the inceptions of the guidelines uh, to first submissions? And then after that, we'll talk about, uh, you know, how we approached ORSA. Uh, well, ORSA, as I said, really started as a result of the financial crisis. And the NEIC wrote a very broad-based guidelines for an ORSA. It was in no way prescriptive. So really, the first submissions that were submitted by some of the largest insurers in 2011 to 2013, they only, everybody had three sections that the NAIC expected from all insurers. Uh, the first section was a description of the insurer's risk management framework, so sort of the entire ERM process. Uh, the second was an insurer's assessment of risk exposure. So this is how much risk you really have based upon if you have 10,000 policyholders or if you have 100,000 policyholders. And then the third section was group risk capital and prospective solvency assessment. And this was then taking whatever your worst case risks were, do you have enough capital to avoid going bankrupt? Or in the eyes of insurance regulators, there's a point where the regulators will come in and do what's called regulatory action levels, where they may require some updates on your plan of action to be more solvent based upon your risks. So without this being very prescriptive, I went back and researched a lot of general risk management best practices. COSO and the Society of Actuaries has always had some documents out there about ERM. And I took those and then created Chesapeake Employers' unique ORSA document. And you know, part of ORSA is, it's called Own Risk Solvency Assessment. So it really is for each insurer and what they do. Being a workers' comp company, our ORSA looks very different than someone who is insuring uh, large buildings, okay, in the biggest cities of the world. The other part was, you know, we've been blessed. The ORSA was really well received uh, by both the MIA and AMBEST because we really hit on all the topics and followed that guidelines but built a lot of depth that showed a lot of meaning and that we had really thought about our risks. And that's a, that's a, a great segue. I'll ask you in a minute about your steps you took. I know when, when ORSA was uh, finalized, you mentioned it's kind of a free form, it's your own risk. Uh, but I think, you know, a lot of uh, companies, depending on the lines of insurance and, and things they wrote, there was a lot of requests for blind calls from individuals like me, outside counsel, to kind of get a sense, right, of what exactly some of the regulators were expecting, I, I would say. So let's let's turn to, you know, what steps did you and your company take in developing your program for ORSA in light of those three sections that you talked about? Uh, well, one was starting to build a framework, kind of a process flow of how we were going to do things. And the first part of that was you had to identify your risks. And when we ended up with about 120 risks, it also became a necessary to categorize them into some topics. So we may have 10 different investment risks, bonds, bond defaults, bond downgrades, stock market. Uh, so they all got categorized as investment risks. 
But then the important part came. We had these risks, but we needed to quantify them because a big part of Orsa was we want to see the numbers, especially after the financial crisis. And therefore, we had to quantify them both in terms of probability and impact. The probability is sort of where those stochastic measurements come in. And the thing was, if you think about stochastic, it wasn't about the most recent things in the news. It was about things and long-term what could happen. The first time we heard the East Coast earthquake back in 2011, all of a sudden, everybody thought that earthquakes were going to be a huge issue on the East Coast. I always do a map of earthquake potentials in Maryland versus earthquake potentials in the South San Francisco Bay. Um, one's much more colorful. I bet. <laughs> and that gets back into also, besides just the probability, is the impact. And it's this thing of not just thinking about your financials, what you might publish in an annual report of some three to five year scenarios, but instead really looking at those extreme possibilities. And there's a lot of consulting firms and a lot of products out there these days that actually will measure those kind of risks at, at those probabilities, both for your investments and also for all sorts of insurance risks. And that's where you really get into these extreme worst case scenarios. Yeah, and, and you're exactly right. And uh, as, as an interesting anecdote, when I was, uh, one of my clients was, was in the life insurance arena and they kind of did this uh, process and it turned out that HR and, and retaining employees ended up being based on the measurements and how they scored probability and impact uh, as being the most you know likely severe impact to the company. And, and let's just say that when we presented the original kind of rough draft to the board, they, they were not uh, too excited about the way that, that we had scored those. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your process of, of you talked about developing the program and where, where do you go from there? Uh, with your top 10 and all of that? Well, with all these risks, once again, we didn't just want people pulling out what they thought the top 10 risks were without looking at the numbers, both in terms of the impact and probability. So what we did was, after modeling those and determining some numbers, we used the idea of quadrant-based heat maps. And the idea is that you map probability versus impact uh, with the goal that when you do that, the high probability and high impact risks are going to be in the upper right-hand corner. And those are the risks that matter. Obviously, the low probability and low impact risks in that lower left quadrant are things that maybe you should note, looks good for the regulators that you thought about it, but based upon your situation, it really wasn't uh, one of the risks that you're going to focus on, especially if you have 120 risks to deal with. The other two are a little different. When you have one high, either impact or probability, and one low, uh, you know, a computer system going down uh, may not be a high impact risk. But if it happens every other day versus, say, twice a year, then that's a pretty important risk for your organization. The flip side uh, may be a little more problematic in terms of protecting yourself in terms of financial solvency, which, for instance, is being a work comp carrier. Our worst terrorism risk is called airborne anthrax. Uh, with losses expected for us of one plus billion dollars. So this is the idea of being a large central part of a city, and this isn't anthrax or ricin on an envelope, but literally someone aerosoled it. And that probability, though, is so low. I mean, it's practically impossible. But, you know, could everybody have conceived of the 9-11 attacks until that morning? So I think it's that, you know, this shows that the people out there, in, especially in advanced disaster modeling, people who are doing your hurricane projections, tornadoes, 
they really think at a different level and are really considering those extreme things. And I thought you said a great point. They might be one 100-year risks, but they could happen any time during that 100-year period. Right. And even more than once. And you know, the, I, I think the other thing, you, you talk about 9-11, which, which nobody would have ever conceived. And uh, you know, now we're aware of those types of horrific risk. But we're also living through a pandemic that you know, people may have anticipated a one in 1,000 type of uh, pandemic, but not, I don't think anybody could have anticipated that you know, as we tape this, we're almost at a year of uh, shelter in place and, and work from home. And that changes things as well and changes dynamics of work comp carriers, changes dynamics of all insurance companies. So you've, you mentioned the, the top 10 risk. What do you do after you've determined that? And, and how do you go uh, take that next deep dive? You've got t- your top 10 risk. Now, what do you do? Uh, well, the real important thing is then what are you going to do about them? Uh, so we've identified them, but then how are we going to mitigate those risks, either from the probability perspective or from the impact perspective? And then you really need to think about a risk response plan, uh, a billion-dollar anthrax attack. How do you protect against that? Well, first of all, you buy reinsurance, but you can only get so much reinsurance. And there's where an important thing is where the government steps in. And it's very similar to what happened both in 2008, 2009, in terms of this pandemic, is that they created the terrorism risk program where they supply terrorism risk insurance, TRIA. And that has now been renewed through 2027. But in those years of renewals, we have been very concerned and therefore really work with our congressmen and with national groups that lobby to talk to Congress and to stress the importance of TRIPRA and TRIA. People use those back and forth. It depends. And that's one of the important things because there does have to be a backstop on some of those worst cases. You can't keep enough solvent. You can't keep enough capital and surplus to really handle that. I think, though, from a more generic perspective, the issue is that you need to make sure your board understands those top 10 risks because they're not working in the company every day. And that's where the executive team needs to come to the board and agree that the inform them these are the risks and here's what we're doing about them. And this is how we plan on remediating them and make sure the board agrees to that. And then the board monitors progress towards those risk mitigation steps. I mean, they need to take it seriously. Circuit City is a classic example of not following through. A speaker a couple years ago at a, a RIMS ERM conference uh, used Circuit City as a case study. Even in their annual report, they knew they had a location real estate problem, but they didn't put any effort into correcting it, believing cheap real estate equaled more profit. But then along came Best Buy's, the concept of a strip of big, big box stores in a row. And within two to three years, Circuit City was out of business. And, and you know, uh, Circuit City is a great example. I, th- I think, as you know, you need to be fully aware. Uh, we recently in my household just purchased a subscription to Netflix. And, you know, you look back to Netflix when it started, it was a competitor uh, mail at home for Blockbuster and Blockbuster is no longer around. And Netflix now is producing, you know, dozens of, of shows and movies per year. So you've, you've talked about that type 10 risk, and we're now talking a lot about this ERM. Uh, where, where do we go from here with ERM? Well, I think, you know, you already have 120 risks and you know your organization. You're not going to get a lot of change year over year. Uh, this year, we do have a whole new section on COVID. 
uh, from several perspectives, what it's doing to premium, what we're seeing from a claims perspective, et cetera. But I think that you really need to think about emerging risks that are hard to envision. As you said, who would have envisioned this pandemic? However, we did have pandemic, and I was very proud of this in our business continuity plan. And I talked about a 30-day shutdown where people may not come to work because they may be sick, caring for sick, or afraid to go out of the house. But that was 30 days, not 365, as you said. But I think it's really that some of the emerging risks may stick, some may not. And I think a classic is climate change. It was once an emerging risk. Uh, now it's something I think the whole, whole world knows has to be dealt with. The one source of that that I just want to mention is Swiss Re does a very good job in that they produce an annual report they call their Sonar Report, which highlights their insights into new and emerging risks. They're very esoteric. They're very global. So while I show that to our executive team when we go through risk identification each year, some of them just don't fit within the workers' comp world. But I think it's this idea of thinking out of the box and not just in terms of the risks. The other part is really thinking about interesting mitigation factors. Too many times, organizations go with the most likely solution that directly affects their risk, which their competitors are probably also doing. So here the thing is to find an alternative off to the side. And what we've tried to do at Chesapeake Employers is mitigate risks, but at the same time, try to set the company up to be in a much better position in terms of its peers financially, or even more importantly, strategically. Do something strategic that the average worker comp carrier doesn't do, and therefore come out not just as reducing a risk, but creating a strategy and a business strategy that works for you and helps make your business stronger and better. I, I think that's great advice, and, and it really plays into this, you know, uh, ORSA and ERM should be, uh, when it's best, not only a reactive device, right, looking back through the rearview mirror, but also forward and trying to anticipate what's ahead. And like you said, trying to distinguish yourself from the uh, pack, uh, because uh, one, uh, having a different idea might actually work better, and, and two, it can distinguish you in the market uh, from your peers. So what do you see on the horizon as, as those next big emerging future risks that you just talked about, Bob? Well, it's really uh, funny because I occasionally will throw out some um, really off-to-the-side, out-of-the-box type thoughts, just like the stock market crashing 50%. And so I have two risks that I usually don't get a lot of buy-in from, but I think it depends upon the area of insurance and just thinking about things in general. One is nanotechnology, which is already omnipresent. But there's some great stories, especially because it, it could be the next asbestos. And we may not know this for a long time. So nanotechnology is used to strengthen the concrete and bridges. But then what happens 100 years from now when you go to demolish those bridges and now there's dangerous health effects, just like happened with asbestos when they started to, to do demolition on homes and buildings that had been built with asbestos. And, you know, this is going to be a long time from now. Do you see that? Because the idea of the nanotechnology is to strengthen those bridges so you won't find this out possibly for 100 years. Right. So it's a future generation risk. Um, and I think the other, uh, the other future risk I like, that's a little bit different perspective in that it's more about the probability over time of something happens. So you're one in 100, but when will it happen? Combined with just absolutely devastating impact is solar flares. 
And every once in a while, you will hear the news talk about that the sun has emitted a solar flare and there are concerns that it's headed towards us. And that's because way back in 1860, the world had just created some of the first telegraph systems in the US and England. And uh, the 1859 solar flare wiped out all the little glass things on the top of old style telephone poles that sort of look like that. And uh, one of the concerns really is, imagine if a magnetic pulse were to wipe out all stored electronic data on Earth. It would just be mind blowing. And it's this time perspective thing, and scientists say this, is that the probabilities do increase when something hasn't happened for a while. So why scientists do believe, because it's been so long since the sun has emitted that really big solar flare, uh, the probability of one coming sooner rather than later is increasing over time. Those are two that people don't want to really think about, can't uh, deal with, but I think they're two real issues. And those are the types of things you find in that um, Swiss Re Sonar report. Very fascinating, Bob. And I, I think we're somewhat similar. And in, in over my career, I've, I've raised issues like, like you said, like the 50% uh, stock drop or other things that I saw around the corner or imagined. And, and sometimes the reception's good and sometimes it's not. And, you know, I'm not in the business of I told you so's, but, you know, sometimes. Uh, things occur, and, and you, you know, you want to t tell the the business folks. See, you know, there are things that can happen, and and the two you mentioned, you know, they're not just possibilities, but but they're going to happen. Like you said, it's just a matter of when they happen. Uh, with that, Bob, I, I very much enjoyed our discussion and your observations in ERM and ORSA, and discussing those topics with you. These are areas that continue to evolve, as you as you mentioned with the sonar report. Uh, you know, we see technology, the pandemic and protests and rioting as influences on how all companies, including insurance companies, continue to evolve their enterprise risk management. We'll continue to see various impacts, external and internal, that impact all of our companies in the insurance industry. And let's hope that there's no solar flare that knocks out all data, because I think insurance companies as large users and all of us we would be SOL. Mm -hmm. So thank you again for joining us, Bob, and I've enjoyed visiting with you. Great. Thanks a lot, Dan, for having me.